0: The following audio drama is rated PG-13 for parental guidance. This is Cal Bannerman, creator, writer, host, and producer on Stories from the Hearth, which is an immersive storytelling podcast in which my original short fiction is performed to engaging soundscapes, helping you to lose yourself in the worlds of imagination. The goal of Stories from the Hearth is to rekindle its listeners' love for the art of storytelling and story listening, and to foster a safe space, an online community for the oddballs and outcasts of this world. Story episodes contain fiction written across a range of genres, from sci-fi and fantasy to historical, romantic, supernatural and horror, all with an unapologetically queer focus. Stories from the Hearth also runs a mid-month miniseries called The Wandering Bard, which examines the history of storytelling and the people behind it. This is episode 13 of Stories from the Hearth, and the story is called Modest Mussorgsky and the Lonely Soldier. After my introduction, you'll hear me explain a little bit about the writing process behind the episode, and then we'll jump right into the story. I hope you enjoy it, and thank you for listening. Welcome to Stories from the Hearth, the podcast for tall tales and fantastical fiction. Short stories, the likes of which you might once have heard a wandering bard tell to a group of villagers gathered around the fire. Each episode will feature a brand new story Written and performed by me, Callum Bannerman. Historical, romantic, science fiction or fantasy, these are tales to transport you, doorways, into another world. Today's episode is a lesson in the writing process for me. Usually I have a little seed of an idea that germinates in my brain for... Anywhere from a day to months. And this is one of them. I was sat and I had this idea of an old guy in a Glasgow flat who was suffering from alcoholism, had been for a while. And I had this idea of kind of Day of the Triffids-esque, like all these plants around him from little seedlings, just like the idea of my story, growing and becoming this jungle all around him in his flat which slowly but surely kind of in some way i don't know how helped him to overcome his alcoholism and that was the idea i wanted it to be you know plant horror but not horrific, um and i wanted it to be short and sweet and and sweet like legitimately sweet like like a nice story a nice um feeling story you know where the the ending is happy and yet what you're about to hear is nothing like that, nothing like that at all. It did still start out similar. Um, I wanted to make my character Polish. There's quite a large Polish community in Scotland. I grew up around a lot of Polish kids in high school. So I wanted to write the main characters as Polish. So that's what happened first. And then suddenly, oh, no, now we're we're actually in Poland and it's not modern day. But it's in the aftermath of World War Two, and then it just spiralled from there. So I really hope you like what you're about to hear. I am super proud of it. I I would go so far as to say that I think this is one of my favorite stories which I've written um, in a while. It was really fun to write, really fun to research as well, because I don't really know much about um, actual Polish towns and geography. Uh, there's a lot of reference to classical music in this story as well, which I really enjoy. My partner um, has played in an orchestra before and got me into classical music, but I still am particularly knowledgeable about it. But I did some research for this and, and it does play a big part. So uh, there's going to be some that features in the episode as well. And um, hopefully it comes across really nicely. Before we get into it, I'll quickly give a shout out to two of my top tier patrons. As always, it's a perk that they've earned through their tier my brother and my sister, Molly Bannerman and Ruthie Bannerman, who, thanks to their support, help me keep going, help keep this podcast ad free and up and running and free to listen to. Which is important to me because I've been inspired for most of my life by punk and DIY values. My mum, got me uh, raised on on a bunch of kind of punk music and second wave feminist ideals. So I've always had that sort of um, individualistic, autonomous bent in me. And it's being allowed to flourish in this podcast, which is fantastic. It, you know, this podcast allows me to to be myself and to put out into the world exactly what I want to put out. But in order to do so, I do need your support. I need monetary support as well as regular support if you want to support me in a financial sense if you can if you can afford to then i do recommend checking out my patreon by hitting the link down below via patreon you can get yourself heaps of bonus content there's behind the scenes content uh, behind the scenes looks to every single episode that's been out so far there are i think around seven bonus episodes which are exclusive to patreon you've got photographic insights behind the scenes, polls which I put up where you actually get to vote on what's going to come in the future from these story episodes, shout-outs, commissions from me. You can actually commission a short story if you take the, the highest tier. You can get physical copies of every episode on certain tiers. There's lots there, so go and check it out. If you can't help me out on Patreon, don't worry, but do help me out by giving this podcast a share and a download, telling your friends about it, telling your family about it, telling anybody you can who you think might just need a little half hour's respite from the chaotic energies of the everyday. Thanks for listening to this introduction. Let's get started with the story. This is episode 13, Modest Mussorgsky and the Lonely Soldier. Luduslaw Dragon was a drunk. By the time Luduslaw Dragon disappeared, he had been drunk for as long as anyone could remember. Luduslaw Dragon was what they called a tramp, down and out and never getting back up. In the pretty little town of Elk, with its tree-lined streets and beachfront adorning one of a thousand glacial lakes in that area, the people had a nickname for Luduslaw Dragon. They called him the Lonely Soldier. Before peacetime, when the dense forests of Bialystok Voivodeship were shaved to stubble on German razors, when the waters of the lake district ran slick with the effluence from a hundred death camps, when all Poland braced itself beneath the boot of the Nazis, Ludislaw Dragon had been a determinedly sober man. During the war years, Ludislaw Dragon had spent his time in the basements of Elk's bars and restaurants, plotting, planning and resisting, not drinking. Though their role had been rendered obsolete by the Great War, the Dragoon class, from which Ludislaw's surname came, had once been one of the most ferocious military classes in all of Poland. The Dragoons were riflemen of deadly accuracy, who rode into battle on the back of mighty steeds. And whilst the family name had never quite sat right on the shoulders of pre-war Ludaslaw, when he took control of Elk's underground resistance, it became clear to all that the blood of the dragons did indeed run through him. So it was with pride that the sallow eyes and gaunt faces of Elk's residents secretly praised the efforts of ludislaw Dragon in undermining the Nazi occupation. But when the war ended, and Poland finally regained its independence, when Bialystok Voivodeship was founded and Elk climbed wearily to its feet as unofficial capital of the region, when at long last the Thousand Lakes which were the jewel of that country began to run clear again, attracting holiday-makers in summer as they had in days of old, when even the forests returned to swathe the land in Palachian beauty, riotous splashes of black birch and larch and pine blanketing the hillsides. When from the ruins of a country came crawling the survivors of those unspeakable years, Ludoslav Dragon was left without a purpose. He tried to remember what it was he had done before the war, tried to recall an old lover whose ashes were now mingled indistinguishably with those of a million others. He tried to bring back memories of a time when his days were easy and free of fear, when he could walk the streets in daylight not sporting a pink triangle on his lapel. But, try as he might, he could not see past the interminable fog of war which shrouded everything in darkness. In the first few months after the surrender, Ludislaw made a concerted effort to apply his newfound skills in the emerging reconstruction economy. After all, he was now something of an expert in several fields – espionage, leadership, organisation, the Russian language, assassination. And indeed, he was quick to find work – first as labourer, then construction site manager and soon even as liaison to the Russian firm which the Polish government had contracted to rebuild Elk. But try as he might, Ludoslaw Dragon could not suppress the feeling that none of it really mattered. Of course, it was pleasing to see historic buildings repaired, residences restored, public parks sown and excavated from the rubble. And yet he remembered so vividly watching them being buried in the first place. knew just how easily his work might be undone again in an instant. And so, breaking an oath he had made to himself way back in 1938, Ludoslav began accepting his colleagues' invitations to the pub. A quiet man, Ludoslav Dragon was not known as a socialite. Private in all matters, it had been a great surprise to all in elk when he had taken control of the resistance. And though he had worn a pink triangle, not the yellow star of David, his fellow Poles had welcomed his leadership with open arms. Now, in peacetime, Ludislaw had expected that his wartime friends would no longer overlook the sexual proclivities for which he had been forced to wear the mark, just as much as his friends expected he would once more vanish into the woodwork. As such, it was an exceedingly pleasant surprise when Luderslaw finally crossed the threshold of Gerricks Inn, not as Patriot, but as Patron. Months passed and before long 1945, one of the blackest years in Elks history, was over. With the new year came a feeling of new life. Spring turned to summer and Elk welcomed to its dark-sanded beaches the first tourists in years. Ludislaw's colleagues at the firm began speaking of holidaying themselves, and now the songs sang round the table took on a different tune. The sombre morning, which had laced melodies like tree sap, was not present in the bouncing, dance-worthy tunes of that summer. Words commemorating lost souls and hopeless futures were dispensed with replaced instead by the chanting of frivolous refrains concerning beautiful girls, hapless fools, absurdist dictators and new romance. As 1946 rolled into 47 and Elk's scars faded ever further, Ludislaw found himself once more the outsider. He alone would not move on, as his colleagues had done. Stubborn as the hill behind Elk, Whose crown remained bald when all those around it had regrown their trees, Ludislaw would not lick his wounds. Ludislaw Dragon did not want to. He could not understand the merriment of his peers, nor the determination of his country to forget its past. Soon Ludislaw's colleagues at the firm stopped inviting him for the after work drinks. Not only did they know that Ludislaw would clock off earlier than they, and would be deep in the drink by the time they arrived, they no longer savoured his company. Ludislaw wished only to exchange war stories and drink to the dead. They had no more stories to share. Ludislaw wanted to speak of hiding among corpses, killing men by hand, the broken skulls of newborn babies. They could not bear to think of these things, let alone talk of them. When Ludislaw got drunk, he sang violent, angry songs about overthrowing the occupiers. But the residents of Elk had already overthrown the Reich and knew not why Ludislaw persisted. Only Ludislaw knew why Ludislaw persisted. Only Ludislaw knew of the terrible hole in his heart which the war had so fleetingly helped to fill. And so Ludislaw Dragon drank by himself. In the least frequented corner of Garrick's Inn, a medieval-style pub on the banks of Elk Lake, Ludislaw Dragon sat and told stories to the ghosts of old comrades and lovers, sang songs to their memory. In time, Ludislaw Dragon stopped showing up to work, and by the time his colleagues from the Russian firm would reach the pub, he would be too drunk to recognise them and would greet them with a scowl. In time, Ludoslav's ex-colleagues chose a different pub for their local, and when the landlord at Gerricks cottoned on to the effect his most loyal customer was having on the rest of his clientele, Ludoslav was thrown out on the street. With no family, no job, and an unmanageable addiction, the man who had come to be known in Elk as the Lonely Soldier resigned himself to the title. He turned tricks for cash, pickpocketing tourists on the beach, burglarizing holiday homes when their owners were out of town. At bus stations and in the restrooms of truck stops, he sold himself to other men who used him sometimes tenderly, sometimes violently, but always from an emotional distance so that the lonely soldier was left lonesome. And always he drank and thought about the old days. And when he got really drunk, he cast his mind back even further, to his youth, and to the only man who had ever made life in peacetime worth something. By the time that the winter of 1949-50 to 50 rolled around, in which the mysterious disappearance of our protagonist takes place. With snowdrifts as high as houses, and temperatures nearing those of the record lows experienced under Soviet occupation a decade earlier, Ludislaw Dragon would have been unrecognisable even to his former self. Bloated from the alcohol, his face a violent web of burst, scarred and purple blood vessels, Ludislaw had lost chunks of his cheeks, two fingers from his left hand, and all by the big toe of his right foot. To frostbite. Once clean shaven with military precision, Ludislaw now sported a ragged beard, whilst his hair was tousled into dreadlocks with the grime of all the years since last he had bathed. Dressed in rags stolen from the washing lines of Elk, Ludislaw Dragon was most recognisable by his immense height and the swaying, inebriated limp with which he carried himself from hovel and squat to street corner and bridge. Though by the late forties elk's population had more than doubled in size compared to the war years, the lonely soldier was known to almost everyone in town. Even newcomers, here only a few months, soon learned of Luduslaw's sad story, and learned not to fear him, but to pity him. True, most in elk avoided the lonely soldier when they saw him in the street. Whilst others actively avoided the streets he was known to haunt. But there were, thankfully, enough souls in town kind and compassionate enough to provide Ludislaw the blankets he needed in winter and the bread and wine he needed year round. As do all small towns in this world have their resident outsider, Elk had Ludislaw Dragon. But then one day, Ludislaw disappeared. A young housewife, Irka Baloris from Latvia, had noticed the lonely soldier bedding down for the night in her neighbour's barn. But when next morning she went to take the man a glass of milk, she found only his clothes and the tattered photograph of a young pianist. Sun bleached and much creased, the photograph was of a handsome boy, maybe seventeen years old, with a Slavic jaw and Jewish nose, a mess of... Curly black hair and eyes as radiant as dewdrops. Sat at an old Kalish piano, the boy was deep in concentration, spindly fingers poised above the keys with furious purpose. Irka guessed it must be an old photograph of the lonely soldier himself, only in happier times. As she sought news of the soldier from neighbours and later that day her husband, word began to spread around Elk that the town drunk had finally upped sticks, moved on to tap the sap from a new tree. And though former colleagues of Luduslaw, including those who had served under him during the war, thought this highly unlikely, these were the same people who were the first to admit that they cared little either way. The soldiers' war songs and constant grieving, the frightful scowl he shot you from the town's dark alleyways, his ill repute among tourists, and the damage his presence did to one's business, none of it would be sorely missed. Naturally, the circumstances of his disappearance were a cause for considerable gossip. No matter where Ludislaw had went, the town was in agreement that it made little sense for him to have gone without his clothes. When a week had gone by, an old woman by the name of Malgorzata Gomolka, who had known the lonely soldier as a young man, finally identified the boy in the photograph. Oh yes, I'm absolutely sure, said the old woman, her bottom lip touching her nose. That's poor Piotr Klimek, so it is. I taught that boy to play the piano before the war. Malgorzata peered at the picture over the rim of her glasses, trembling hands exaggerated by the terrible cold of that January day. Where did you get this, lassie? She asked Irka, who, by the look on her face, had not quite comprehended that her week-long search was at an end. The lonesome soldier, replied Irka, in broken Polish. His clothes, it was left behind. Malgorzata Gomolka thought about this for a moment, and as she did, a strange smile began to thread its way through the heavy lines of her face. Her eyes sought the ground for answers, and absent-mindedly, her fingers smoothed the dogged ear of the photograph. After a while, she turned from the porch and shuffled back into her house. Come on in, lassie, she called. Irka, a little affronted by the old woman's curtness, protested. Oh, no, I can't. Mr. Balladus is home early. He'll be expecting his dinner. There's washing to do, and the house is a mess. I but she was interrupted by the return of Malgorzata to the doorframe. The old woman raised her eyebrows. You know, my Marius married me when I was just fifteen years old. Took me a while, but I loved him dearly in the end. Died on Liberation Day, 19th January 1945, the day the Red Army marched through town. Heart attack, just sheer couldn't believe his luck. (laughs) She chuckled, as if sharing the joke with her deceased husband. Then, more seriously, she added, "'Broke my heart, it did. "'But you know what I realised that day?' Irka shook her head. "'By the time Marius died, we'd been together for fifty years. "'I was sixty-five then, and I'd been with him since fifteen. Fifty years of my life I'd worked, day in, day out, "'putting food in that man's belly.' "'washing the stains from that man's soiled undergarments, "'sweeping the floors of that man's house.' "'She leaned closer, putting a hand to the side of her mouth, "'letting that man prod me with his thing. (laughs) Fifty years I did all this, every day, "'and do you think I ever received a word of thanks in exchange?' "'Irka shook her head again. "'Now, how about you do an old woman the courtesy "'of joining her for a wee glass of Maslanka?' Finally, Irka's face softened. She blushed, her pale porcelain cheeks turning bright red. "'Of course,' she said. Taking the young housewife by the hand, the elderly widow pushed the door shut behind them, braying like a horse at the welcome envelope of heat which met them from the roaring fireplace. "'I'll have you back in plenty of time to cook for Mr Balladus, don't you worry. But a word of advice—' These men might not look like they're capable of much, but trust me, they can cook their own meals. Biggest mistake my Marius ever made was boasting about the richness of the dumpling gravy he used to make on the field during the Great War, you know. I told him right there and then that if he could make it under shell fire, he could sure as hell as filled with fire make it one night a week whilst I put my feet up. Irka looked quite shell-shocked. And seeing this, Malgorzata roared with laughter. That's, yes, yes, dearie, that's as good an impression of my Marius as I've ever seen. Malgorzata's home was sparsely decorated, but welcoming. Above the kitchen table, which was pushed against the wall, were hung two of only a few decorations in the whole house. One, a dark wood shelf unit, was hung adjacent to the head of the table, a few feet above the back of the chair. On it was arranged some china trinketry, presumably imported via the Soviet Union from its sister state. The little frogs, mice and rabbit figurines were a little sentimental for Irka's tastes, but she was impressed nonetheless. On the other wall, at right angles to the first, was hung a grandmother clock. Roman numerals in polished pearl peered out from an ivory face, beneath which swung a big brass pendulum, like the testicles of an old man. The thought made Irka giggle, which she covered with a cough. Momentarily, she wondered how on earth the old woman had managed to keep these evident antiques out of Nazi hands, but she knew better than to ask. Presently, the young woman was shown to a seat at the head of the table, opposite the shelves with their Chinese menagerie. Malgorzata banged and thudded with surprising vitality about in the kitchen and returned holding two mismatched tumblers and a carafe of thin white mazlanka which was a fermented buttermilk left over from the churning process. The Latvian took it cautiously, but quickly discovered that the taste was to her liking. Once the table had been furnished with a small plate of chocolate-covered plums, Malgorzata finally took up her seat at the side of her young companion. "'You know, my Marius used to speak a little Latvian. In fact, he taught me a good deal of it, so, as I could help him practice. I I can switch to it, if you should prefer.' Irka sipped her maslanka, neatly returned the tumbler to the coaster, and shook her head. "'No, thank you. For me it is important to try my Polish.' Malgorzata nodded approvingly. "'Very well.' Now, about poor Piotr Klimek, remind me why it is you have his photograph. The old lady munched a chocolate date between her gums, her expression blank, as if it were Irka who had come to her for a story and not she who'd impressed the story upon Irka. Oh, I uh, I found it when the lonesome soldier disappeared. I was person dis- discovered his clothes and I-, I found this picture there. I thought it must be him. Soldier, as a younger man. Slowly, recognition returned to Malgorzata's eyes. Ah, yes, yes, of course. Well, you're not far wrong. Did you know that I used to teach young Piotr here piano before the war? Irka dutifully shook her head. Oh, yes, yes, yes. No, he was a natural talent, you know. Such a quiet boy, so, so slight and delicate. You could hardly get a word out of him. But when he sat beside you at that stool, placed his scrawny knuckled hands to the keys, it was it was as if he could suddenly speak with all the elegance of, of a Greek philosopher, of, of a consul to the Roman Senate, or, ah oh yes, actually, perfect, as Queen Wanda of our ancient nation had spoken, when she was faced with the prospect of marriage to German invaders and had given them a passionate speech about the virtues of independent womanhood, you know the story, before taking her own life. At this point, Malgorzata paused to cross herself in the manner of the church. Though the old woman's eyes were to the ceiling and could not have noticed what Irka was doing, the young Latvian followed suit all the same out of politeness. She did not know who this Queen Wanda had been, nor had she heard tell of the woman's oratory until now. Malgorzata turned to Irka, a spark in her eyes. That boy could play. Very soon he surpassed my ability to teach him, but still he came, every day after school, to practice by my side, over there at at that piano. She pointed to a dust sheet-covered mass in the corner of a room spied through the open kitchen door. A little surprised, Irka realised that it was the same room pictured in the photograph. Every day the old woman sighed. Anyway, I think playing the piano, Piotr found a measure of peace which he could not find in the outside world. My Marius and I were not the sort to want children, or at least God did not in his infinite wisdom see it fit for us to bear them. But Piotr, well, I think sending Piotr to me was God's way of gifting me a child when I myself could not have one. And so, with what little money Mariusz could give me each month, I would buy a new record for Piotr and I to listen to. I thought it only prudent that, you know, with his talents, I school him on the great Slavic composers, Chopin of Warsaw for starters. Though, whilst Piotr marvelled at Frederick Chopin's delicacy and complexity, he found his nocturnes Lacking! <laughs> lacking! Lacking what? I'm sure I don't know. Amused, Malgorzata shook her head. So I turned to the Russians. Tchaikovsky, of course. I thought surely the 1812 Overture had the soldierly force, the the, the pomp and audacity which young boys lusted for. But when I played it for Piotr, he screwed up his face, said that it was vulgar. Vulgar! Tchaikovsky! (laughs) Of course, like I said, though he was but a child, he he had an immense gift for music. A kind ear. He was always grateful for the records and never would have expressed such a contradictory opinion unless pressed. And I always pressed. When I played him Rimsky-Korsakov's Flight of the Bumblebee, I thought that finally I'd cracked it. That piece excited Piotr to no end. However, Rimsky-Korsakov soon proved a dead end too. My boy called him a one-hit wonder. <laughs> By this time, Piotr had started bringing a friend to her house for my weekly listening sessions. The friend, of course, was that lonely soldier of yours. Ludislaw Dragon was his name. He was the only friend I'd ever known Piotr to have, or go on to have. I'll admit that at first I was a little put out, that my Piotr should share what we had with another. But when I saw the fierce loyalty that young Ludislaw held for my Piotr, when I watched a smile, so rare, spread across Piotr's face to see Ludislaw listen to the music, I could not help but welcome this other child to my bosom. Still, when it came to music, you must realise that I felt I had reached an impasse with Piotr. Ludislaw, on the other hand, had less of an ear for music than an ass, and I don't doubt he would have lapped up the Battle of Prague by that driveling Czech Kochvara, if only I'd have deigned to wring that muck into my house. (laughs) The old woman laughed heartily, but not without a measure of genuine disgust. Irka watched on. Mouth a little agape, as this ancient elder of Elk bandied the works of famous composers about her house like objects of local gossip. No, Luduslaw, I think Luduslaw cared more for the time he spent with young Piotr than he did for the music. But with Piotr, I was ready to give up. Then one day, I played for him Night on Bald Mountain by Modest Mussorgsky. Do you know it? Irka shook her head. Malgorzata smiled sadly. Oh, it's quite beautiful, she said. Turning her gaze to the kitchen window, the old woman allowed her eyes to flutter whilst she hummed. Mm-hmm. change in Piotr was quite immediate. Something in that music, something deep within it spoke to him, I think quite powerfully, as the divine might speak to a true follower of the faith. But it wasn't just the music which reached him. You see, Piotr studied every record sleeve, in minute detail of course, but with that Mussorgsky slip, he could not peel his eyes from it. You see, That record sleeve told the tragic tale of modest Mussorgsky's life, his youthful defiance of musical standards, and later his melancholia, his trouble with alcohol, his eventual retreat into hermitage and poverty, and, eventually, his death. Sad, lonely, suffering, delirium tremens, the composer was only 42 when he died. (laughs) Malgorzata stopped talking. Though she made no sound, her cessation of movement told Irka that she was struggling to contain herself, and a glance at her eyes, red-rimmed and watery, told her the rest. The young Latvian housewife produced a handkerchief from her sleeve and offered it to her host. Malgorzata accepted it gratefully. "Oh, "'Oh, thank you, my dear. Oh, you know, the older I get, the more easily the tears come.' One would think that it would be the other way (laughs) round. She chuckled, daubing at her eyes with a corner of the hanky. I could not understand at the time what drew my Piotr to modest, and that man's tragic tale. I thought, as might any mother, or, you know, I thought little more of it than, than a fascination for the grotesque, as most boys Piotr's age held. We were not long after the horrors of the Great War, of course, and men at that time, even boys, had seen darker sights than had likely any others in human history. The fervour with which Piotr took to Mussorgsky's compositions from that day on was only matched by the passion with which young Ludislaw pursued Piotr. Together, the pair wore the grooves smooth on my recording of Night on Bald Mountain. Later, when they became young men and began to earn their own way in the world, I would often see them parading around town together. A copy of Mussorgsky's most anguished and alluring cycle, Songs and Dances of Death, clutched under arm. Eccentric, perhaps, but I think in Mussorgsky the pair found a like mind, a kindred spirit. At least, for Piotr, I believe that to be true. Modest was, of course, also an outsider. By the end of his life, he had removed himself from all of his friends, or had been removed by them. A drunk, I don't think Mussorgsky ever really felt like he fit in, and in this, my Piotr most certainly had an equal, whilst his mind for composition was on par with Mussorgsky's. For Ludislaw, I believe it was Piotr, in whom he found a kindred spirit. And so it was the pair grew up around that bitter, beautiful, melancholic, tremendous, and exacting music. Again, though completely absent mindedly this time, Malgorzata hummed the opening bars of Night on Bald Mountain. Mm-hmm. 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 As her humming faded to silence, a quietude settled to the kitchen table for the first time that afternoon, like dust dances and falls in the autumn sun. Irka finished her glass of Maslanka, thought about taking a chocolate date, then thought better. After a while, she spoke. ''What happened to him?'' The old lady looked up from her reveries, her eyes a little glazed. ''Hm? What's that, Didi? ''What happened to... what happened to... Piotr?'' Malgorzata smiled to soothe the obvious nerves of her young companion. ''Oh, well, what happens to most brilliant young men in the end?'' What I should have seen coming had I but better understood his adoption of that Russian as his hero. Irka noticed this time that Mussorgsky's name, which Malgorzata had treated quite plainly before, was now replaced with that Russian, or rather Ruski, a slur which the Poles only employed when all rational reasoning had failed. He drank himself to death, my love. In adulthood, my wee Piotr Klemek and his best friend, that Ludoslav dragon of yours, well, they became more than friends, shall we say. Again, the old lady crossed herself. It suddenly struck Irka that despite her obvious faith, she had seen no crucifixes on her host's walls. Not knowing what quite for, Irka followed suit again. More astute an observer than her age suggested, Malgorzata was quick to clarify her point for the confused housewife. I mean that they were lovers, dear. Homosexuals. She crossed herself again. Ludislaw, though reserved, was a big man, frightening when he needed to be, and I think for that reason alone he allowed himself to be proud of his nature. But Piotr, she shook her head, I think Piotr saw that he could never be with Ludoslav, and be a famous musician, which had been his only dream since ever i had known him. In the end, I think it was this which tore him apart, which pushed him further into the drink. When I saw him last, I was bringing his neighbour some eggs, and passing his door, I heard the opening bars of that Muzarski song, which I had first introduced him to. I let myself in and found him alone in one of the filthiest rooms I'd ever seen, listening to that record on the only well-kept thing around, my old gramophone. I hardly recognised him, lassie, and I thought for all the drink he could have not possibly recognised me. But then, do you know what he said to me? As I turned to leave, Irka shook her head. Piotr thanked me. Malgorzata inhaled heavily through her nose, stifling her emotions. My poor Piotr thanked me for believing in him. It had been years since last we'd spoken, even longer since I'd shown him any love. She coughed, hiding a sniffle. Years, And look at all he'd been through since then. And and yet, here he was. Thanking me. He recognised me after all. (laughs) This time, the old lady could not contain her tears, and let out a single, heaving sob. They found him dead in his house, three days later. That same record still under the needle of the wind-up. That was 1938, the year before war broke out again. Malgorzata took Irka's hand and held it. Supposing what we know now, I would hazard to guess that Ludislaw, though estranged from Piotr for some time, took the death of my boy very hard. When war came, it, it was Ludislaw, you know, who, who led the resistance. Ludislaw, who, grieving in his own way, set out to save as many folks as he could. And believe you me, he saved hundreds. Malgorzata fell silent. I suppose, well, I suppose in the end, even a thousand saved souls could not have filled the hole my Piotr's death had bored in the young dragon's heart. Oh God, oh God! At long last, as if the great walls of Babylon were finally stricken down, streams of soundless tears began to pour from the duct of that ancient woman. Through the estuaries of her wrinkles ran rivers of salt water, recompense for the lives she had touched and yet had been unable or unwilling to preserve. Irka put an arm tentatively around Malgorzata's shoulder and held her until the woman's eyes ran dry. For lack of some better way to console her, Irka picked the tastiest-looking chocolate plum from the plate and offered it to her host. Initially a little dumbstruck, the offer soon had Malgorzata in tears again, though this time with laughter. The youngster's youthful compassion had loosened the knot in her breast. Oh, 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 my, oh, look at me. What a mess you must think I am. As she said that, the grandmother clock on the wall chimed, startling both women with its bell. The hour had turned and it was now four o'clock in the afternoon. Irka realised with a start that previous chimes must have passed her by without her noticing, for she had been sat in Malgorzata's kitchen far longer than she had intended. Oh dear me! exclaimed Malgorzata. And now I've made you late home, and after my promise to have you back in time to make Mr Ballardus's supper. Oh, goodness gracious, the old woman began to get up, ushering Irka to do the same with an anxious flurry of gestures, but Irka stopped her, a hand on the old lady's forearm. Please, Mrs Gomorka, I need to know, what does this mean? About L-Ludaslaw, the the lonesome soldier? Why would he leave photograph behind when it meant so much to him? She slid a finger across the kitchen's tablecloth until it came to rest on an edge of the tattered photograph. There, Piotr Klimek's frail, angelic features peered down upon his piano. As a shepherd might watch, lovingly yet tensely, spring lambs take their first trembling steps. Malgorzata Gamolka rested where she stood, half out of her chair, captivated by the elusive charm in the boy's dark eyes. Then, with a sigh as soft as bird's breath, she sank back into the seat. Slowly, carefully, the old woman popped the chocolate-covered date in her mouth, masticating whilst she thought. Eventually, she turned to Irka. Well, dearie, you know... (laughs) I think the mystery may be less complex than it appears. She pointed then, directing Irka's gaze to the kitchen window, beyond which was the rising townscape of elk and beyond that the wooded hills onto which the historic settlement backed. Crowning this group of hills, however, was one which still bore the scars of war, a mountain whose head was shaved clean of trees. Turning back, The young housewife found Malgorzata smiling. If my Piotr were still here, he would laugh. You know, I think that Luduslaw Dragon went to spend his last night on this earth atop that bald mountain of ours. And I think that there, at the very end, the lonely soldier felt not so lonesome after all. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Hearth. With today's story, as I explained in the introduction, it kind of came out of nowhere and I just rolled with it. It was a pleasure to write and I hope it came across that way, but I would really be interested to hear what you all thought of it because it was something done very differently. The protagonist never got a voice, he not once said a word, he wasn't even, uh, we didn't see anything from his perspective, not once, And, and that was very deliberate. I really wanted to to kind of make him feel like an outsider to us as well. I didn't want us to know, I didn't want myself to know what had gone on in his head. Uh, I just wanted us to see what everybody else saw of him. So that we might realise how difficult life was made for somebody like that. I found one of the most interesting things about doing this episode... Uh, Malgorzata's voice. That was really difficult actually because until this episode again there hasn't been a story where it's been you know largely told by a narrator who has a very specific uh, character. It's usually a sort of anonymous narrator who doesn't really have a a part to play in the story but for me to relate Piotr Klimek and Ludus Dragon's story from Malgorzata I had to find an old woman voice which I could perform for, let's face it, the majority of the story. And I'm interested to to know whether you thought that worked. Um, It was not easy to do. I'm I'm an amateur voice actor at best, but trying to uh, come up with a voice and then carry that through for the entirety of the story... um, not something I've done before, so, you know, we'll see how that came out. This story obviously has a lot of um, very tentative, uh, sensitive subjects in it. The persecution of Jewish people, the persecution of homosexuals, uh, queer people, people of uh, differently abled people, um, gypsies and Poles indiscriminately. Uh is a part of history which is hard to tackle, it's hard to it's hard to stare at um because it's ugly, it's upsetting, it's traumatic for for many millions of people around the world whose whose heritage is directly linked to that blackest, blackest period of European and world history. Um but it's still one that I wanted to 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 look at, to examine with this story, because I feel important. I feel important to to keep those stories alive, and that's what storytelling is: is taking stories that you heard when you were young, and reformulating them, reworking them, reshaping them, rewriting them to present something new, so that you can keep that that content and and those facts alive. You know, um, there are stories written in the Great War or World War One and the Second World War which are still incredible pieces of literature incredible stories but perhaps don't uh excite or or engage um the the younger generations now as much as they did when they were first released so it's important to me to try and rework a story within that setting in order to to kind of keep all of that information alive um and to to introduce people who weren't perhaps familiar with the fact that uh, homosexual men and women would have to wear a pink triangle on their lapel, just like Jewish people would have to wear a yellow star of David to, to identify them in public as uh, somebody who essentially, in in the end, was going to be going to the death camps and the labor camps to be exterminated just because of their sexuality. And of course, for ludislaw he managed to carve for himself a space and somehow survive throughout the war without that being his his end point and yet he'd already lost uh, a lover before the war he'd lost a lover to homophobia before the war and his death in itself is kind of a product of homophobia after the war i wanted to to show that dichotomy between you know The the irony of him surviving this this most brutal period of history for his kind of people, but in reality, it's always been brutal, you know? To be a queer person in history has almost always been uh, dangerous, and I wanted to show that. Anyway, enough of the bloody lectures. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard today, please do subscribe, share this podcast with friends, family, and anyone you know who could use a bit of respite from the chaotic energies of the everyday. If you wish to support the podcast, please head to my Patreon by hitting the link in the description below. Similarly, you can check out the podcast's Instagram, Twitter, and website via the links below. Story episodes are released once a month, And the next episode is going to be a Halloween special out on the 31st of October. Between now and then, however, you're going to get one of the mini-sodes, which is usually reserved for my patrons, and you're going to get an episode of the Wandering Bard historical series, which looks at the history and the people behind storytelling. That'll be out on the second Sunday of October. A shout out before I go to four more of my top tier patrons. To Charlie B, Rob Sanderson, Vivian Bannerman and my grand and papa Sandy and Jane. Thanks to them and many other patrons who support me on Patreon, I'm able to keep making these stories, keep putting them out, keep experimenting, keep being creative and hopefully keep you entertained. Until next time, I've been Callum Bannerman and you've been listening to Stories from the heart.